It is the Finding Joy podcast. I'm Jerry, along with Benji and Rob, and something a little bit different. I think the last episode, as we were wrapping up, we told you there's some new things coming down the road with the Finding Joy podcast. That's right. Yeah, we're excited. We're working out the final details, and uh, you know when time comes, we will let you know about That's it. That's right. And it's not actually with the Finding Joy podcast. We're yes. talking a new yeah. podcast coming very soon. New so and improved. So no, stay well. tuned for that. But speaking of new podcasts, Jerry, you got a new episode coming out on your podcast, I right? I do. Uh, Life with Jerry Williams. And this will be the episode that comes out on Monday the 18th. I got to tell you guys, I am psyched about this. I think, I think in the past, I've told both of you about this artist, Sarah Nimitz. Yeah, um, yeah, and she's part. She she does some guest vocals with a group called Postmodern Jukebox. I love those guys. They do a yeah. lot of covers of they, stuff. Well, right? What they do is they take contemporary or or recent songs and they do them in different styles. So they yes. do some songs like in a big band style. Yeah. They do it in a jazz style, a gospel style, and that's where I first found her. Somebody had told me about Postmodern Jukebox, or I just discovered them on YouTube. And Sarah was singing one of the songs. I thought, this girl is phenomenal. I wonder if she's... And so I looked her up, and, and she's got a ton of stuff mm-hmm. on YouTube, and, and she's got albums out and anything, everything. Anyway, I saw her on Facebook back around Christmas time. She was hosting an event called Jam for Jesus uh, at a church. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I wonder if, if she's doing something that's Jam for Jesus. There's got to be some faith story there. So I contacted her through Instagram, and she responded. <laughs> she's in, she's an indie artist, so she's she's her whole team almost. Uh, and so I, I interviewed her, and that will be uh, on my podcast coming out on Monday the eighteenth. Strong Christian young woman, phenomenally talented. She's a singer. She's a songwriter. She actually did a lot of the music for the TV show Glee. It was in a couple of episodes of Glee. Wow! Uh, and 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 does so. Hopefully, you'll be able to to listen to that and be as fascinated with Sarah as I have been these last few years. I'm excited. But what we are doing right now with the Finding Joy podcast is sort of revisiting some of our favorites. Yeah. And first up, he drew the longest straw <laughs> or the shortest straw. <laughs> uh, it's Rob's favorite episode. Yeah. And this one, I tell you, talking to Greg Brazina, who runs Christian Families Today in Noonan, and the remarkable work that he does counseling and really building people up. Plus the fact, you know, we're talking a re- retired NFL linebacker with oh, the yeah. Atlanta Falcons. Yeah. So just hearing Greg's story and his journey, his faith journey, and how where, how God led him into this ministry of helping others, knowing what they are in Christ, uh, just really was a, a, a moving interview he was if not the one of the most transparent people that we have had on this podcast was mm. very open to sharing all his faults and, and foibles and how he struggled with alcohol and his wife almost left him and how uh, he he had no identity outside of football and, and things he dealt with in his faith walk and his struggle there it was he teared up a con this is this is i mean he's He's seventy something, but he's yeah. still a hulk of a figure. Yes, uh, yeah. And being a former linebacker, I wouldn't want to line up against. Him. No, no, still. no. <laughs> Me but it's, he has a tremendous story. Yes. Well, let's get to that story. So, Greg, let's talk a little bit about your growing up. And how many brothers do you have? I had six brothers. Okay. 
and uh, my baby brother died a year after my dad died. You all went to the same university yeah, from what all, I understand to play football. W- yeah, six of us went to the University of Houston, and all of us played football mm-hmm. scholarship. Three of us played professionally. Okay. Wow, I didn't and realize so, that. And then you were drafted by the Atlanta Falcons, 1968 it was? Uh, 1968, correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. What was life like with uh, – Playing professional football uh, in in the late sixties, early seventies. What what would you say uh, was your was your takeaway, and may, maybe compare it to to what you see in in pro football these days? Oh well, the it, it was guys wanted to play back then in the sense of uh, winning, and and not so much for money. Hmm. I think today the focus is more on money than playing, and uh, more on entertaining. Hmm. Than uh, than playing like we were because my first year I made twenty five thousand, which wasn't bad back in the sixties. Mm-hmm. When I was playing, you played when you hurt, you were hurt, right. and I don't know how to explain that other than uh, I don't want to say we were tougher, but I'd like to say we we're tougher. But <laughs> <laughs> I think you may have been tougher, but <laughs> but you know they they they're doing this this CBA the bargaining agreement between the owners and players, and they're talking about up in our uh, retirement. You know, for old players, and so I better say kind things about them. <laughs> <laughs> They're great guys. Yeah. <laughs> we watch in the good grace that's, of that's, Goodell. So that's that's kind of, that's kind of my perception of yeah. right, <laughs> which is probably biased a little bit. Yeah, but those were some some wild days for you too, from what I understand, especially in the early days. Well, uh, coming out of college, uh, both of my grandfathers were functional alcoholics, and a couple of uncles, and and we don't say that in the family, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it, it uh, that's a family secret, so mm. we don't want to let anybody know that. Right. Mm-hmm. But uh, the reason I share it is because of, uh, it's out, it's out there. It's a problem in our culture and society, and and if you don't acknowledge there's a problem, uh, it's not going to be healed. Right. If we don't acknowledge we're sin, we're not going to get saved. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and I said I'd never be like my grandfather, and I turned out to be just like him. Those are the wild days you're talking about. I always thought, well, growing up, you know, Vince Lombardi was one of my heroes. And Lombardi was a man of faith. He was he was a Catholic. He went to mass every day, and he tried to live like that. And uh, I was Catholic growing up. And so I tried uh, uh, hard to, to be a good Christian and couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And so out of that frustration, uh, you know, drinking followed. You know, if, if you can't find satisfaction, mm-hmm. you begin to, to lose faith in yourself and, and, and in others in the whole system. And I thought fo- football was my redeemer. If I could just be the greatest football player that ever played, then uh, – I would be satisfied, and that's what drove me. Uh, I was all American in Houston and played in Pro Bowl. My, what my second year in uh, in Pro Bowl started in my last part of my last part of my rookie year, and and I always thought if, if I could just make the next stage, you know, it, I thought if I could just be in the Pro Bowl, I'd I'd be one of the best. I'd be satisfied. But I played in the Pro Bowl, and then after after that's my second year, I got injured in preseason of my third year, and uh, and I had the year off, 
And so I started thinking about my life and how all my life I've set goals to achieve goals, and I was never satisfied. And I started thinking, hey, playing in the Super Bowl, winning the Super Bowl is not going to satisfy me. Even if I make the Hall of Fame, NFL Hall of Fame, it's not going to satisfy me. So I just started drinking, becoming a functional alcoholic. And then uh, around, well, it was probably September of uh, 71, uh, my wife Connie said she had had enough. Uh, she woke me up one morning about 5 a.m., and I was laying in my own puke in the foyer of our new home. And, and she says, uh, she, she helped me get up. I you know, I had puke all over me, and she helped clean me up. And she said, you come home like this one more time, I'm leaving you. I said, hat up, baby. I have enough problems. I'm going to get up my life. You know, and she cried a lot. Those were the, probably the darkest days of our lives. You know, I just, uh, just I didn't care about anything. You know, those are those were wild days or dark, dark yeah. days. I, I yeah. think it's because you were fairly young back then, just out of college, the second year of playing pro ball. You're what, 24, 25 like years mm-hmm. old, something mm-hmm. like that? I came to Christ at 25. For, for you to have the insight knowing I've set all these goals and so far I've reached them, but they haven't satisfied me, the future goals, Super Bowl, Hall of Fame, you know what? That's not going to satisfy me either. Knowing that that wasn't the answer was amazingly insightful, especially for somebody of that age. I think a lot of people today never realize that. They don't make that connection. They keep looking for satisfaction in these things that can't provide it. It's just physically and spiritually impossible for those things to satisfy you fully, but they don't realize that it's not they keep trying again well maybe this will satisfy me maybe this without realizing that what they really need for satisfaction is a relationship with jesus christ so for you to be that far along at that young age i think is an amazing testament to your to your inner self-awareness well you know the holy spirit is the one who convicts yeah and uh, it was very gracious of god to bring me to conviction where i could understand and make the choice and that's what you're talking about, making the choice whenever the Holy Spirit does convict and brings you to brokenness that you're willing to surrender to that or submit to that. It was brutal back then. I mean, it was just brutal. I mean, uh, as far as trying to, I was, I was a tormented human being or a mm-hmm. tormented soul trying to fulfill. I mean, I, no one ever, all my goals, I've always achieved the goals that I've set out for myself, and they never satisfied. Not one of them. See, most people from the outside looking in would think, even though he had been injured, here's a guy, he's playing professional ball. He's been in the pro bowl. He's living the dream that you should be the happiest person on the face of the earth. Right. I mean, and that's what I thought. Yeah. But I still acted like it. I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) People still wanted my autograph and and, uh, wanted me to come to their meetings and speak at their banquets, and and I did all those things. But they never knew what was going on in my private life. Uh, that was a, a sacred area that you don't let anybody yeah, in, right. in. All of us have those areas. So yeah. what finally got you to that point where you realized, I can't keep going like this. I need something. And, and you found a relationship with the Lord. Yeah. Well, it was, it, it was the mama. My dad died when I was six years old. And so I uh, never really had a dad. I always looked to my grandfather as my father figure, uh, but I never could please him. 
I could never do enough to satisfy him or to be accepted by him. So when I hit about 13 or 14, I said to heck with him. And I've always looked to coaches uh, as, as a father figure. And coaches loved me when I played well. But when I didn't, when I didn't play well, <laughs> they chewed my rear end down. And mm-hmm. so I was, I, I was raised on a performance-based acceptance. You mm-hmm. perform. If you perform right, and so that's why I had to camouflage my alcohol, my drinking, and everything else is because I had to perform. As long as I could perform, people would pat me on the back. If, they, if I didn't perform, then they wouldn't. So my wife was about the only one who knew uh, what my life was really like. And Mama raised us with, uh, we had family. We, we uh, you know, in the sixth grade, I went to school barefooted. And we were poor. In fact, uh, I think uh, DFACS, it, was, it wasn't DFACS back then, but I think she got like $5 per child uh, to help. So we were on welfare. Coming out of that was, um, was I thought that money and, and fame would do it, and and I thought marriage would do it, but family was the main thing that Mama gave us. She said, "Always remember, you take care of family. You know, you take care of your wife. You you look after your children." And Connie was pregnant with our first child, and I just didn't care. I was I was I, all I've ever wanted to do is play football, be the best, and uh, and I couldn't be it. Because I'd make, I'd make mistake, I'd miss tackles, and I was harder on myself than any anybody else was. Coach would uh, scream and yell at me, but I mean, I would I would scream and yell at myself more than that. So uh, when my wife said she was leaving me, uh, that was the ultimate failure. I was at, and so I just I didn't know what to do. Uh, I was still playing football. I was re- always hated people who played for money. And didn't play for hard, but mm. love of the game, and uh, and then I became one of those guys. Mm. I'm only playing this thing money. I get get all I can get out of it, and and uh, it'll make me at least I I'll be protected or be safe with accumulation. But whenever she said she's leaving me, that I did, just didn't care about anything any, anymore, and just went just kept drinking, and uh, we were out on the west coast. Uh, playing the Rams, and Don Hanson, uh, who was the other linebacker. Nobis was the middle. Hanson was left linebacker. I was right linebacker. And uh, Hanson was our chaplain on the team, and uh, he came up and asked me to go to chapel. And I said, no, no, I don't, I don't, I don't tried that God thing. And, uh, he's, you know, if he's out there, he doesn't, doesn't hear me. And he said, uh, well, uh, Russ Snip, an Olympic weightlifter, is, is speaking in chapel. And I said, man, Christians have always been wimps, you know. <laughs> they need help. I never needed help. I did it all on my own. And I said, but an Olympic weightlifter, he's not weak. I, I think I'll go hear what he has to say. Hmm. And uh, so, hey, hey, Don, I'll... Uh, I'll be there. I went on, when I went into the room, I sat in the back. I learned that at church. If you sat in the back, right. then Mama couldn't see you if you left early. You know? <laughs> and growing up, and so uh, uh, the guy shared uh, the four laws. You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And and uh, 
we don't understand that plan because we're sinful and separated from God. And and the only way, that's why Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. And But it's not enough to know all that. you got to come to the point where you receive. Christ is knocking at the door, and you got to open up the door. The doorknob's only on the inside, and you got to open up the door to receive Christ. I, I, well, I was ticked. I, was, I said, God is out there, you know. When I was uh, six years old, Mama took the four of us, the four oldest boys, to say goodbye to Daddy. He had a bad heart, and he was dying in the hospital. And uh, catechism or Sunday school teacher told us that God hears the prayers of good little boys, but he doesn't hear the prayers of bad little boys. And so Mama said, we're going to tell Daddy goodbye. And so he, Daddy was Dad was in a coma. And so... She, Mama said, tell Daddy goodbye. So I said, goodbye, Daddy. And it went on to my brother. And as, as they were saying there, whatever they said, I, I was praying. I said, God, I pray that you'd heal my Daddy. Because in, in Sunday school or catechism, they're telling you about how Jesus healed all these people. And uh, I thought of myself as a good little boy. But uh, he died the next day. And uh, then it I really hated God at that point. And that's a wound that uh, that sticks with you. Have you, um, since coming to Christ, though, how have you allowed your Heavenly Father to heal that? Forgiveness. He has, he has, uh, 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 he has, he has forgiven me. For all my sins, it's the first thing after the chapel service. After the chapel service, I went up and I was going to leave the room, and everybody started going up and shaking hands. Well, that's one of the first times I think I went to chapel. And I said, oh, this is a team thing. I better go shake his hand, too. So I went up, and and all of them were saying, good talk, good talk. And so I said, good talk. And he said, are you a Christian? And I thought, I've been set up. Somebody, <laughs> so they got me to hear so they could put, put the pressure on me because other people have put pressure in, on the past. And uh, I, I said, uh, I looked around. I didn't see anybody laughing or anything, you know, where they, you know, set, I've been set up for something here. And uh, he said, are you a Christian? I said, uh, yeah, I'm a Christian. He said, how long have you been a Christian? I said, all my life. He said, Greg, you can't be a Christian on the off. I said, beg your pardon. Go back to Louise, Texas. Check the church roll. My name is still on the roster. My, all my family members, as far as I can go back, have been part of the same denomination. And he said, Greg, doing all those things doesn't make you a Christian. Just like standing in the garage doesn't make you a car. And he asked me right there in front of some of my teammates, would you like to turn from your sin and trust Christ? And I said, I don't know who you've been talking to. But... Uh, I'm a Christian. I don't care what you say. And uh, I, I turned around and left. Went up to my room. I was ticked, and I uh, laid down on the bed. I, well, I threw myself down on the bed, bed, and was just frustrated. And I, uh, all of a sudden, all my sins, like a PowerPoint presentation, mm-hmm. all my sins just started going through my mind. I mean, just all of them. And I felt so guilty and so ashamed. And I just, I just slid off my bed. Uh, sometimes I say slithered, slithered <laughs> uh, off the bed. And on my knees, I said, God, if you're out there, if you are 
who this man says you are come into my life and show me my sins are forgiven and all and at that moment almost i had no guilt i had no shame i felt totally clean i felt like all my sins were forgiven everything was forgiven and then once that happened then it became forgiving myself and so god gave me the grace to forgive myself but it took a little longer for that yeah. And it usually then, does. And then forgiving others. I had to go back to all my brothers and my sisters and ask them forgiveness. I had to ask my mother, and I was able to go back and ask her to forgive me. And, and then I raised my boys under legalism, and so I've been asking for people for forgiveness. Uh, I'm constantly asking people for forgiveness. But uh, family is, is, it was, was the key to that. Is the trigger. The trigger was my wife saying she was going to leave me, but she didn't leave me. In fact, uh, that we played. We, that was about eleven or twelve o'clock. At one o'clock, the buses came to take us to the Coliseum to play the Rams, and I think we, I think we tied them. After the game, uh, we took our charter flight back to Atlanta, and I got drunk on the plane going back. <laughs> oh. I mean, well, I mean, the stewardess was there handing out yeah. alcohol. Right. It's her fault. And right. no, 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 no. What, 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 well, let's, let's take a step back. We were, we were on the sidelines playing the Rams, and the head coach started – the referee made a bad call. They're always making bad calls against us. And I've always had a tough time with referees. And the head coach started cussing GD this and GD that and the call. And so I started – I backed him up. You know, I said GD this and GD And when I said GD, the ice pick went in my heart. And I thought I was having a heart attack. And so I started walking to the bench because uh, I, I wanted to go sit down. And I heard this voice behind me say, do not use my name in vain. And I looked around to see there wasn't anybody around me. But I heard it. And uh, so I went and I sat down on the bench and uh, I heard it again. Do not use my name in vain. And I said, yeah, you know, I figured it was God. So I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'll never use it again. Now, I have never said GD again. But I've thought that. <laughs> uh, but um, so that happened. And then when I was getting on the plane, the stewardess was handing out the alcohol. And, and there was that same voice that said, don't take it. And I said, I had a good game. I'm going to celebrate. You know, and I took it. And I got drunk on the way back. And so Connie hadn't left me. She's, it was, we got home about 1 o'clock or so in the evening, I mean morning. And she picked, picked me up at the airport. And. And I got in the car, and she could smell the alcohol. She hates alcohol. And I said, uh-oh. She was just <laughs> driving, staring straight ahead, didn't say anything because she smelled the alcohol. And, and so I said, I, I got to think of something. that She'd been trying to get me to go to church. You know, church helped our parents. It'll help us. I help, I help their marriage. It'll help our marriage. And I said, no, I'm, uh, I, I tried church thing. It doesn't work for me. And so I said, okay, I, I got to think of something that will, that will uh, give her some hope for right, our marriage. Right. And so I said, uh, 
I went to chapel, you know, I went to chapel today. <laughs> she's driving. She just looks at me and then doesn't say anything. She just looks at me and then keeps try, staring straight ahead. And, and uh, I said, okay, that wasn't good enough. I got to think. I gave my life to Christ today. And I didn't even know what I did. I mean, I mean, I, I don't even understand that. And, uh, and you need it. <laughs> uh, I and gotta so, meet your wife, man. <laughs> yeah, oh, God, she's she's yeah. an angel. She she doesn't have an enemy. <laughs> she is uh, perfect for me. And how long have you guys been married? Now? Fifty, almost fifty-one years. Wow. Hmm. That is. How did you meet Connie? I just. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was at a, a pepper. Well, it wasn't at a pepper. It was after the pepper alley. We. We were uh, at the University of Houston. She was going there, too. And we had 11 seniors on the squad. A head cheerleader asked me at the pepper alley, asked me to introduce. I was captain, so he asked me to introduce the, the other 10 guys. And so I introduced them, and I looked out there and saw this brunette out there. And I said, mm-mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> I gave her a call that night. I said, hey, Connie, this is Greg Brezina. How about a day Saturday night after the game? She says, I already got one. I said, well, how about Sunday? And she says, no, she has to study. Her sorority sisters told her, don't date Brzezina. He loves and leaves. And okay. <laughs> oh. okay. Yeah, and, and rep. <laughs> well, it's that that uh, when, my, when they buried my daddy, I cried and I cried and I cried. I'm still crying. Uh, and, I, and, and after that... After we buried him, I said to myself, I'm never going to let anyone get close to me again. I'm not going to be hurt like this again. And so every time a girl would get serious, I'd date them, and I'd be the great guy. As soon as they got serious, wanting more from their life, I was out. I'm out. I'm out of this thing. And so that's my reputation. I love and leave. And so, but I kept talking to her, and I finally talked her into it and to go to Shoney. We went to Shoney's, and, and she, we got a hot chocolate fudge sundae. I was, I was pretty cocky back then, but uh, that's what started it. Okay. You know, you know. One of the things that sold me on her, we were having dinner one night at Bill Williams' restaurant. They had the best fried chicken. It's very similar to what Mama made. And uh, we, had, we had finished the meal, and I, I had my hand on the table. And she grabbed, took my, my hand in her two hands. Now, this is, this is getting too close again, okay? It makes me very uncomfortable. But she grabbed my hand, and she says, I love your hands. When my hand is in your hand, I feel safe. Well, in high school, I had the largest ring size in the senior class. Wow. <laughs> that baby's a size 13. That looks like a bracelet, man. <laughs> <laughs> and so... That was my junior year in high school. And when the class heard about it, everybody started making fun of my hands. And so you'll see me a lot of times. I'll, I'll be speaking, but I'll have my hands in my pocket. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't see my hands, you can't make fun of them. Mm. And she was the first person that ever said she liked my hands. And that's the first time I thought, i got to marry this woman. <laughs> but then I, then I constantly had that struggle with, I can't let anybody get close to me again. They're going to hurt me. That's how we met. Okay. And, uh, and praise God, uh, we've been married uh, 50, over 50 years now. And the one thing that has kept us together 
is forgiveness. That and the fact that you remember your first date was at Shoney's. Right. You, know, you, <laughs> just, you just have to think, yeah, thanks a lot, because now my wife's going to listen to this and ask me, do you remember where our first date was? <laughs> so thanks, Greg. Thanks a lot. I remember where mine was. I so. do, too. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not well, many do. <laughs> well, life post-football, I mean, we're in um, this beautiful facility now. How did, how did we get from football to here? Well, it, uh, when I retired, Connie said, what do you want to do? And I said, um, well, if people continue to ask me to speak, I was speaking all over the country and some parts of the world and, and with my testimony basically. And if they, if they want us, if, if people continue to ask me to speak, we, we'll just start our own ministry. And so I retired and, uh, and people kept asked me to come speak every week and then they started asking us would you in my testimony i'd tell how god healed our marriage and then churches and pastors started asking us would you come do a marriage seminar for us and so we went for the marriage seminar we were basically doing that and i started running the ministry like a business the old performance-based acceptance you got to have a big ministry in order to be accepted by people you got to write a book and I found myself getting into the same performance-based cycle at the same time with my performance-based. Like one month, I spoke 38 times. Golly. And at the same time, I was raising my children on performance-based Christianity. Uh, like my son, all my sons have done well in, in education. One of my sons came home from Wheaton, who is majoring in uh, chemistry. And he came home one time at uh, at a fall break or something like that, and I said, "How are your grades doing?" Because his perform we're based on performance, right. and it's going to be uh, uh, my worth and value as a human being is based on how my children do. He said, uh, "I made a B on on this one test." And I says, "Well, did uh, did you uh, study for it?" And he said, "Yeah, I studied for it." I said, "Well, did you uh, did you go over the questions to see if they were ambiguous?" You know, uh, where you could go to the professor and get a, the ones you missed. And he said, yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, did, did you go to the professor and ask, is there anything you could do to upgrade? And he just started, he broke down and started crying. He says, I can't do anything to please you, can I? And the Holy Spirit said, as, as he went back to his room, the Holy Spirit says, Brazina, there's something wrong with your Christianity. And that's that's when I just want I wanted to kill myself. I figured if I could get up to a hundred miles an hour on one of these South Georgia roads mm. and coming home from speaking late one night, and everybody would say, "Oh, well, Greg was giving his life to Christ." I could I could keep my name intact. Uh, but then I was too chicken because what if it didn't work? What if I just messed myself up? <laughs> <laughs> and that's when. That voice came behind me. Says, "Greg, you died with me two thousand years ago." And and uh, I was I was finishing up my master's degree because I knew if I got my doctorate of theology, that I would know how to live the abundant Christian life. Because I I was telling everybody to live the abundant Christian life, but I wasn't living it myself. And I figured yeah, I need to get my doctorate of theology, so I had to do a hundred eighty hour practicum. 
to finish my arts and counseling. I've spoken a couple of times at Dr. Stanley's church, and so I called him, and he put me in touch with his head guy at their counseling department, Al Scardino. Al wanted me to go through their counseling process before I would go through my practicum, and I said, yeah, I, I need more knowledge. And uh, the first, second night, the teacher said, you don't have two natures. And I've always been taught that I had two natures, sin nature and a new nature in Christ, born again. And even though the teacher shared Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified to Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And then Romans 6.6, 6, that our old man has died, there were no longer slaves to sin. I didn't believe that. But then he quoted Martin Lloyd-Jones on Romans 7, and he says that Martin Lloyd-Jones says the biggest problems Christians have is they're fighting a sin nature that's already been crucified with Christ. Mm-hmm. I believe Martin Lloyd-Jones, but I didn't believe the Scriptures because I was into theology. I, w- I wouldn't read. Yeah. I, that's what I would read. I'd read theology books because that, w- that was the answer to the abundant life. Right. And so uh, that's what started the grace message. Now I don't have to build an empire. I don't have to write a book. I don't have to. Uh, all I got to do is listen to the Holy Spirit and just do what he says. And so everything you see, I mean, we're, we're in Pakistan. We're in India. We're in China. We're in Chile. <laughs> we're in Kenya. There's a team of eight guys now in Kenya that are going out two by two teaching the LIJ. And they've been into seven or eight. They want to reach all of Africa with this message. I haven't done anything. I've just sat here and just watched it happen. I I could have written a book on marriage already and parenting, which we do marriage and parenting seminars. I can tell you how to become all pro. In fact, I've tried to make some of my grandchildren all pro. (laughs) (laughs) And they won't listen to me. Everybody has to do their own thing. (laughs) I'll do it my way. No, my way's best. And so, but I've I've been a performer all my life. And so I just said, I'm not going to do anything anymore. God, if you're going to do something with this ministry, you got to do it. And so he's just, the thing is exploding around the world. You could look at my life and see it. He has blessed me. We've got 19 grandchildren. And, uh, all the boys have married believers, and God has blessed us there. And so we're working on 19 grandchildren. And I know with that many grandchildren, there's going to be issues, heartache and heartbreak. And We've already had uh, Catherine. I don't know if you, Nancy told you about uh, Catherine. But, uh, one granddaughter who had brain, brain tumor at five years old, aggressive cancer. And uh, she's doing okay today. Well, Greg, this has been a very enriching time. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I I feel like I'm going to walk out of this room knowing some stuff that that's going to going to stick with me, and uh, I appreciate you sharing your heart. Well, if uh, you know, if what you you may want to come back sometime and get the opposite to this, like uh, like Bo. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Ben Ben was the first one to come. I I never thought my boys would because of the way I raised them. You do it because I tell you. You don't look at TV. You look at the Bible first and. So you should figure out what the TV's all about. Right. right. All the legalism I had. Ben, and he he called me from Wheaton when he's graduated, he said, God's called me to come. 
I said, don't come unless the Holy Spirit. If if the Holy Spirit tells you to come, we'll we'll have a great time. If the Holy Spirit doesn't tell you to come, then we won't have a good time. And so it's been a great time. I I think, I don't know how many years you've been with me now. Probably, probably 18, 19 years. And then Bo was third child. He went to Wheaton also. He he started telling, Bo, Ben started telling, hey, uh, 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 Bo, the guy that raised you got to get to know dad. He's not the same man that raised us. He's not the same dad. And when Bo came back, he went on the other side of town. He still wanted the relationship with dad, but we didn't have a good relationship. Uh, I, I, I told him uh, when I was, I was making all pros out of them, and I, I had Camp Fun. Camp Fun was, was running the track. And you you walk a two twenty, and then you you almost sprint a two twenty. But I got the stopwatch, and I, I'm timing you every every time you do it. You walk a two twenty, you have to walk it a little faster than the last time you walked it. And I'm carrying the watch, and then when you run it, you have to run it a little faster. Uh, they start out at three quarter speed, and then gradually work up. And you 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 do it until you, your lungs burn and you got cotton mouth and and uh, and that's what you, one of the things you have to do in order to be great in football. And I was going to make my boys great, right. <laughs> because if they're not great, then there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And Bo was about eight or nine, and he started crying. And I told him, I said, if you don't stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. Well, you speed up the clock. His wife is pregnant. And the baby dies in her womb. And Bo doesn't cry. His wife cries all the time. She's got to carry it two weeks. She's got to carry it two weeks. And... uh, He didn't cry during those two weeks. So his wife thought what? He doesn't care. And I said, no, no, that's not it. When he was eight or nine years old, his dad told him that if he cried, then I I would would make, you know, give him something worse than he was experiencing. And, And I think I've seen him cry twice all because I was trying to control his behavior. So Ben kept saying, hey, this is not the same guy. Well, he, he was doing a great job where he was at. They would promote him, but they would always pay him the highest salary of the last position because now he's 20, like 26 years old, but he's he's in the same position as 45-year-olds. And so they pay him less because of the 45-year-olds. And I've always told him, hey, you don't have to worry about what you make. Just do a great job, and you'll get paid for it. You're rewarded. And so uh, he wasn't getting rewarded, so he said, uh, Dad would be okay if, if I come and kept your books of the ministry and get my uh, MBA from uh, Georgia State, and I want to be a, a financial consultant. And I said, great. So he comes here. And he comes in the office, and he says, Dad, remember when I was five years old, and uh, and you did this? I said, will you forgive me? 
and he's still coming to my office. He's been here eight years, I think, and he's still come on when he knocks on the door. <laughs> and he'll come in and say, Dad, what? remember when I was 13 and you do? That really hurt me. I'm tormented now, but it, this is a beautiful torment. Nothing like healing. We've all sinned against others, and others have sinned against us. But to bring healing to family is my heart's desire. Hey, I'm Jules. Are you one of those people who need evidence, proof? Then give the latest Jewel Show podcast a listen. Don Nelson, a professor of anthropology at the University of Georgia. Humans are not capable of solving these problems. You know, for as good as people can be and act, we have all sorts of problems at an individual level. The Jewel Show podcast. Give it a listen at thejoyfm.com slash jewels or wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and while you're there, go ahead and subscribe to us.